Good evening. Hey, we are definitely turned on. Good evening and welcome to our service here at St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland. My name is Craig Anderson and I'm the Minister in Training. Let me welcome you, especially if you are a visitor tonight. Please do stick around afterwards, whether you are new or, or regular here. It'd be great to spend some time getting to know one another better. As we begin our time together, let me open with a prayer. The prayer written a number of years ago by a Puritan. Let's pray together. Most holy God, may the close of an earthly Sabbath remind, remind me that the last of them will one day end. Animate me with joy that in heaven praise will never cease, that adoration will continue forever, that no flesh will grow weary, no congregations disperse, no affections flag, no thoughts wander, no will droop, but all will be adoring love. Guard my mind from making ordinances my stay or trust, from hewing out broken cisterns, from resting on outward helps. Wing me through earthly forms thy immediate presence. May my feeble prayers show me the emptiness and vanity of my sins. Deepen in me the conviction that my most fervent prayers and most lowly confessions need to be repented of. May my best services bring me nearer to the cross and prompt me to cry none but Jesus. By thy spirit give abiding life to the lessons of this day. May the seed sown take deep root and yield a full harvest. Let all who see us take knowledge that we have been with thee, that thou hast taught us our, our need for a sinner, hast revealed a finished salvation to us, hast enriched us with all spiritual blessings, has chosen us to show forth Jesus to others, has helped us to dispel the midst of unbelief. O great creator, mighty protector, gracious preserver, thou dost love us with love and kindness, and has made us purchased possessions and redeemed us from all guilt. We praise you and we bless you for our Sabbath rest, for our calm conscience, and for our peace of heart. In the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear our call to worship from Scripture. Come, O children, and listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Then the children will see it and be glad. Their hearts shall be glad. Let's remind ourselves of the fear of the Lord as we sing our first song together, Behold Our God. Please stand and sing.
Please do be seated. In our evening services together, we're reading through a book of the Old Testament, reading through 2 Kings, and this evening we are in chapter 16 of 2 Kings. If you're using a church Bible, you can find it on page 387. 2 Kings, chapter 16, in the church Bible, page 387. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for sixteen years. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his king. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Then Rezan, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the men of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. Ahaz sent messages to say to Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and out of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Ker and put Rezin to death. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pelazer, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When a king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering. The king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and the grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. And Uriah the priest did just as King Ahaz had ordered. King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entrance outside the temple of the Lord's in deference to the king of Assyria. As for the other events of the reign of Ahaz and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Hezekiah his son succeeded him as king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me mention our notices for us this Sunday. As always, all of our notices are in our weekly email. If you don't currently receive that and you'd like to, please do speak to me after service. Two things to mention for us this evening. Any keen five-a-side footballers, we're not playing five-a-side football this Monday, but just a reminder that our prayer meeting is on on Wednesday from 7 o'clock in the lower hall for tea and coffee, and then from half 7 to half 8, our time praying together. That's all our notices. Nice and easy tonight. Let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Our 
Our great God and Father, we praise you for your good and the gospel is true. We thank you for your Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns at your right hand. The King of the nations, the King of the church, the head of the church. We thank you for our union with him and our union, therefore, with one another. For we thank you for the gospel which breaks down all barriers, is good news for all people, and for all those who repent and believe in the wonderful news of the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved. We thank you for the good works you've given for us to do. And we thank you for the rhythms and seasons in the year and for this quieter time during summer. We pray for those who are often with us away on holiday. May you bless them, we ask. May they return to us refreshed, ready to continue to serve you and where, wherever you place them. And we thank you for those you've brought here this evening. May all of us here leave having met with you, refreshed in the good news of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the last three weeks of the Aspire summer program. We pray for those Americans still to travel home. We thank you for their example to us, their service in traveling over here, seeking to reach Charleston with the good news of the gospel. We pray for the gospel seed which has been sown. May its yield a fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. For those who have made an early profession of faith in the last few weeks, grant us wisdom in how to care for them, how to disciple them. We pray for them as they return to their families. Perhaps tell their friends that they know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Protect them, we ask, from all attacks of the evil one. We thank you for last week being able to use the shopfront shop front for the first time. Father, thank you for all those who have served over the last weeks and months in getting that uh, building ready. Help us in the last stages there are in getting the soft furnishings and things ready. In preparation for the coming uh, semester with uh, Jambo coming to serve as an apprentice there. Lord, may you use these labors in Charleston for your glory. May they all be done for your glory. We long for the knowledge and the glory of the Lord to be known in Charleston. Not so that we can feel good about it. Not so that we can say that we've planted a successful church. But the fame of your name and yours alone, Lord Jesus. We pray as well for Ailey and Jordan with their uh, recent marriage ceremony. We thank you for that celebration up north the other day. May you bless them in the early days of their marriage together. Guide them in how to live as a, a couple serving you. We pray for those in our fellowship as well who are engaged to be married. Protect them with the temptations which, which come. May you help them in their days of preparation for marriage together. Father, for those in our, amongst us who desire deeply to be married, Father, grant them satisfaction, we ask, in your will, whether that is to be married later on or to remain single. We thank that marriage is a good gift, but a temporary gift. Singleness is a good gift. For all good things from your hand are good gifts. Grant us all wisdom in how to love and serve one, one another. And Father, we look forward to hearing from you this evening as your word is opened. We thank you for Paul's glorious letter to the Romans. Be with David as he seeks to proclaim the excellencies of Christ from chapter 8. May we leave here having met with you, having heard your word proclaimed. May you raise the humble amongst us and challenge the proud. May your will be done in this evening we ask, this evening we ask, Lord Jesus. We praise things in your name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to sing together, we're going to sing Psalm 28.
to the tune of Walton. If you're using a book, we're going to sing stanzas one and two, and then six to nine. For everyone else, sing the words on the screen. As this happens, we're going to take up our collection this evening. So please stand and sing as Stephen comes up to present us in singing Psalm 28, the tune of Walton. To you to be seated. We've been praying for Scotland and the nations, praying for the work of the gospel. We face a task unfinished, multitudes of people dying, unreached with the gospel, on their way to hell without Christ. Multitudes of people for whom the Lord died for and they don't know it. They can't taste it yet. We face a task unfinished so we go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled no other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord let's stand and sing our next song together facing a task unfinished and afterwards David is going to come and preach to us from Romans chapter 8 please stand and sing as we the band begins to play
Let's turn to God's Word, uh, to Romans chapter 8. In the mornings we've been looking at Romans, we didn't this morning, we changed to the evening because we have that liberty. Uh, And we're going to read from verse 5, it's on page 1134. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I heard words I never thought I would ever hear in a church building in Scotland. Not in this one anyway. Somebody said to me, it's too hot to go to church. It's too hot in the church. And um, I happen to be reading the next week, and they're not here, which is a real shame. So I hope they listen to it online. Because I read this uh, from uh, Chrysostom and a sermon entitled, To Those Who Had Not Attended the Assembly. He was speaking in the large church in Constantinople, now Istanbul. And he was talking about those who weren't there. He was saying there should be a lot more people here than there are, and there was probably hundreds anyway. And he said this, I was quite amused by it. Now if they make the summer season their excuse, for I hear of their saying things of this kind, the present stifling heat is excessive, scorching sun is intolerable, we cannot bear being trampled and crushed in the crowd, and to be steaming all over with perspiration and oppressed by the heat and confined space. And Chrysostom went on to say, I am ashamed of them. Believe me, For such excuses are womanish. Okay, he wasn't a feminist. (laughs) Indeed, even in their case, those who have softer bodies and a weaker nature, such pretexts do not suffice for justification. So that was Chrysostom, not me, but I just thought it was interesting that uh, even way back in the 4th century, in um, what we now know uh, as Turkey and Greece, that ministers were giving their congregations rows for not coming to church for whatever excuse uh, that there was. 
But we look at something a little bit more serious, the question of spirituality. Um, I don't know how you understand that word. And again, we live in a culture where being religious is generally not good, or certainly being a, a Christian, people under, as we understand a biblical Christian, but, oh, I'm a spiritual person, is what they will say. But what do they mean by that? And I think what they mean has so infected the church as well that we've taken it on board and we're a bit scared of the word spirituality. We, we don't associate, for example, the Bible with spirituality. You say, oh, I'm not into a book. I, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. And they usually mean by that how they feel um, and, you know, various demeanors that they may have. But I, we're going to look at this in, in terms of the spiritual mind and uh, the sinful mind, what the Bible actually says about that. And I was reading a, a book by Peter Adam on spirituality, and I, I found it really, really helpful. And he says this, another reason why evangelicals may be reluctant to pursue the subject of spirituality is because they are single-minded about primary evangelism. The question is often, what's the irreducible minimum of the gospel the unbeliever needs to hear, rather than what is the fullness of the gospel God has revealed? And I think, by the way, that Adam is absolutely correct in that, because I think we think if we just give people this minimum, then, then they'll become Christians, and then we teach them, and so on, and, and yet I don't think the gospel comes in a minimum. And I think as we teach the whole word of God then the gospel comes across in, in that way. But Adam goes on to say that their preoccupation with initial conversion may have led them to neglect growth in the Christian life. If this is so, then there's room for repentance, for God's gospel is effective not only to make new Christians, but also to produce mature Christians and mature churches. So Craig uh, talked about those who had professed faith. And it's absolutely wonderful to hear of people professing faith. But it's not if that profession doesn't lead into maturity as a Christian and, and, and growth in Christian discipleship and, and growth in the church. Because that would indicate that the profession wasn't really real. So all the time we have to be thinking... How do we grow in our faith? How do we become more spiritual? And Paul deals with that here. He talks about those who live according to the sinful nature, have their minds set on uh, what that nature desires. Some of you may, may recognize this language. Any of you who are younger, you won't recognize it. But I had a teacher who used to ask me every now and then, who are you walking out with, David? And what she meant by that is who you're going with. At least I say, I've, I have no idea what the current phrase is. What do you say when you have a, a boyfriend or girlfriend? But who are you walking out with? I always thought that was just such a quaint idea and such a great idea. But when we talk in the Bible of the Christian walk, I think that's a really good question to ask. Or living, who are we living with? Are we walking with Christ? Are we living with Christ? And what's the difference between living with Christ and living without Him? So let's look at these verses. Uh, we'll just go through them one by one, fairly straightforward. They're, they're, they're wonderful verses. First of all, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Now, what Paul is doing here is going back to Romans 5, 6, 7, and he's talking about the world of sin and death. He's talking about a mindset dominated by ungodly impulses. He's talking about what the, the, the sarka, the, the flesh, desires and contrasts that with the mind of the spirit. And in Christian terms, spiritual always ties in with the Holy Spirit, not how, how we are spiritual, but how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Flesh here is not your muscle and tissue. It's much, much more than that. It is our fallen, 
egocentric human nature. It's what we are when ourselves are absolutely at the center of our universe. And when you think about it, it's, it's almost impossible for that not to be the case, isn't it? You, you think about everything from your perspective, and so do I. We think about what we like and what we want and how things will impact us. And even when we do good to others, it's still from our perspective. But it's a very self-dominated, self-centered world. And it really is difficult to get away from that. Um, if I said to you I was proud of my humility, you would, you would realize immediately there's a problem. And if I said to you, well, I'm not a self-centered person, you'd realize exactly the same thing. So it's really hard for us to get away from this self-centeredness without, um, in fact, we don't get away from it. We, we often just appear very, very hypocri- hypocritical. C.S. Lewis has that wonderful phrase about a woman that he describes as she lived for others, and you could see the pain in the other's eyes, you know, because basically it was a woman who was, who was dominating others through her own selfishness. So the flesh here is just what we are without the Spirit, what we are without God. It's, it's kind of unregenerate human nature, except as we saw in, in Romans 7, when you become a Christian, there is this battle that goes on within you. And every single one of us faces this battle until the day that we die. The day that we die, the struggle is over, the war is ended, it's finished. But until that day, there will always be this battle. The pneuma here is the Holy Spirit. And I, and I think maybe it's easier if um, we see how Paul shows this when he talks to the Galatians. Let me just, I mean, these are well-known words, but let me just read them anyway. Galatians 5 from verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then for those who don't understand, I think he goes on to say, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So you see there's a, a, a contrast between two ways of thinking, two ways of living, our mindset. Now what Paul is saying in, in verse 5 is that our mindset is determined by our nature. We think like this because we are like this. And what we need is for our nature to be changed. The flesh panders to our ungodly self-centeredness. The spirit desires what glorifies Christ. And so we are to set our mind now, it's a very, very interesting thing. I, um, not just Tim Keller, but loads and loads of, of well-known Christian writers. I think especially the Puritans were, were very good at this. Asking, simply stating, what do you think about when you're on your own? What do you do in solitude? See, we live, in, again, in a society where it doesn't like people to be in, in solitude, doesn't like people to be quiet. We've got to constantly be being distracted. 
We don't do a great deal of meditation and a great deal of thinking. But when we do, what do we think about? What do we dream about? What do we long for? What are the things that preoccupy our mind when we do get a break, if you like, a bit of peace and quiet from work? Or let me put it another way. What ambitions drive us on? What are we concerned about? How do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? How do we spend our energies? All of that comes from who we are and whom we love and, and what we love. And Paul is telling us in, in this verse that we have our mind set on what our nature desires. And I would, I would say this, if your mind, if, if all the time you're thinking, how do I get that husband or how do I get that woman? How do I get that job? How do I get that money? How do I do this? How do I do that? I think you've really, really got to question whether you're a Christian at all. I think that's a really serious, serious thing. Um, it really, you know, my, my job is I'm, I'm a minister. I'm here to teach God's Word. And yet there are times when you look at your own life and you think, what am I thinking about all the time? I'm not thinking about Jesus. I know all the right answers, or I think I do. I probably don't. But am I caught up with Jesus Christ? Do I see his beauty? Do I want to live for him? You know, I was uh, greatly taken with a young Chinese student who came to the church here, came to a Christianity Explored course, and um, she'd never been in church, never read the Bible, came to this Christianity Explored course, and at one point in, in that course, she was crying, and we asked her, you know, are you okay? And she said, yes. She said, it's just Jesus. He's so beautiful. And I, I was quite envious of her. I just thought, she really feels that. And she doesn't know Jesus. I mean, she obviously became a Christian and um, was baptized in, in CBC. But it's just a, a, a just, I, I'll never forget just the, the look on her face as she really got who Jesus was. And I think Paul is to some extent describing us, how do we think? What are we, what are we looking for? And, and I think he goes on a bit more. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Because I think there are two results. There's two ways of thinking, and there are two results. Death versus life and peace. Life and peace is where grace and righteousness reign. There's, there's life and peace. But how we think has eternal consequences. The mindset of fleshly dominated people, and that is people who are focused inward on themselves, are, it, it's, it's, it's a spiritual death and it leads to eternal death. It's an alienation from God. God is not in their thoughts at all, says the psalmist. There's only death to look forward to. For the Christian, it's something that is very different. In Hebrews, we are told that Jesus came to free those who all their lives were trapped or enslaved by their fear of death. Again, in our society, we've got people trying to trivialize death, but I don't think that will really work because I think no matter how much you brainwash people, there is still that sense within every human being of the eternal. And, you know, the, the self-absorbed, the, the fleshly, sinful nature center life, it's just, it is, it is a, it's a life that only ultimately has death. But the spirit-absorbed life is different. It's life and peace. In the same way, he says in chapter 6, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alive to God, alert to spiritual realities, 
and thirsty for God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. The spirit, spiritual mind has peace with God and peace with their neighbor. Now, I love the communion this morning. Um, it's really hard to explain these kinds of things because those of you who experience it know what I'm talking about and those of you who don't wonder what it is I'm talking about. It was lovely sitting at the Lord's table. It was lovely singing God's praise. There was a stillness. It's lovely hearing and proclaiming God's word. And it's not being mystical and it's not being arrogant, saying the Spirit was present. Now, in one sense, God's Spirit is always present with us. But there are other times when you feel it. And I, for me, I absolutely long for that. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. There are times when you don't feel that. Many times you don't feel that. Even gathered in worship, you don't feel that. And you're wondering, Lord, why, why does my mind wander so easily? Why am I so obsessed with other things? Why am I not burning with love and desire for you? And that is, I think, part of the battle that Paul describes in Romans 7 that he's coming to deal with here. But I think you know it. You know the mind that, that's dominated by the flesh is one of death, whereas the mind that's filled with the Spirit, dominated by the Spirit, keeps in step with the Spirit. It's crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He goes on, verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh, he's basically repeating the same thing in different ways, or developing it rather. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It does not and cannot submit to God's law. And again, that's going back to Romans 7. If you're looking to religion or good works to save you, that's where you'll go wrong. You can't do it. But even as a Christian, when you've committed your life to follow Jesus, when you've experienced the new birth, it's still possible for you to try and develop a relationship with God which is, is relying on the law, and we can't do it. We just can't do it. Why? As we saw this morning, there's a deep-seated hostility to God. We were looking at Psalm 83, and it's not just the rulers of the nations, but there is an anger and a hostility to God, hostile to Him, hostile to His Word, hostile to His kingdom, hostile to His law, hostile to His day, hostile to His people, hostile to His Son, hostile to His Spirit, hostile to His glory. And here's the thing, we can have that. You are, you have people who are closest to you, your family, your children, parents, um, your, your husband or wife, or maybe your very closest friend. Sometimes it can shock you that the people who you get most angry with and most hostile with are people who are closest to you. Um, Andrew, when he was doing the wedding, and it was a lovely wedding up in uh, Dornoch of Jordan and Ailey, typical Andrew, he came out with a one-liner that I wanted to tweet all over the place. He said, statistically speaking, uh, he was speaking to Jordan and Ailey, statistically speaking, you're sitting next to the person who's most likely to kill you which was a great way to, to, to have a wedding. I, just, I thought, oh my goodness, son. That's, 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 how to, that's how to do a wedding. It certainly got everyone's attention. Of course, statistically speaking, it's true. You can, you can be really hostile to people who you're closest to. Sometimes that can really scare. But you know, what I find is this. I find as God begins to work in someone's life, that isn't always expressed immediately by them saying, oh yes, I love Jesus, I, not like our Chinese friend. It, it, can be, um, it can be expressed in real aggression. So paradoxically, sometimes I'm very encouraged when you're telling someone about Jesus and they react really badly. 
Because to me, it's an indication that they're getting it. Whereas if they're kind of, oh yeah, that's fine. I think, no, you haven't grasped what's going on here. There's something underneath the surface that it gets to. But there is that hostility. We're hostile to God. We can't, we can't submit to God's law. And again, it's that contrast between the self-centered. You cannot be self-centered and serve God. See, that's the problem where in church, you get churches where they're trying to say to you, look, you come to church and we'll give you everything you want. And you can use God to get what you want. No, you can't. You come to church and if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to give up yourself to follow him. And if you try to use God, you try and say, well, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and God will give me this, this, and this blessing, you're not grasping the deep reality of the warfare that goes on within, that your sinful nature wars against the spiritual. And there's the, we end up with the two categories of people. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the realm of the Spirit, can. If we love God, we want to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, we make it our aim to please Him. We want to submit to His will. We want to do what honors Him. And we often find that so difficult. Paul is later on in Romans 14 going to explain what that is like. For example, uh, Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Is there anything better that we can do in life than to please God? It's, uh, again, with people who you are very, very close to, whether it's your parents, uh, your partner, your best friend, or whatever, you really, really, really do want to please them. You, you want to do what brings them pleasure, and that should be our relationship with God. But because of this hostility, because of our sinful nature, then we do need to cultivate the, the right kind of spirituality. John Stott talks about these verses saying that they ultimately show there are two categories of people, the unregenerate who are in their f- the flesh, the regenerate who are in their spirit. They have two different mindsets, which leads to two different ways of living and results in two different spiritual states, death, life, enmity, or peace. So the question then becomes simply, What is your mindset, and how do you cultivate a more spiritual, Christ-centered mindset? And again, I'll just come back to finish with uh, Peter Adam, just some ideas I found really helpful from him in in a practical way, where he argues that spirituality is a kind of spiritual diet in which the various resources provide necessary elements of that diet. And he talks about three things. First of all, the creation. A good dose of the creation reminds us of God's eternal power and greatness. Secondly, Christian fellowship. That provides personal encouragement, support, rebuke, and correction. And that, by the way, is a better reason for coming to church than Chrysostom giving you a row for being afraid of being hot and sweaty. And then thirdly, he says, the Bible. It gives us God's point of view in every area of our lives, and it's the means which God uses to speak to us. And if you take those three things, think about it in this way. If you neglect the great world God has made, which he sustains every single moment, we become really obsessed, again, by ourselves and by humanity, Adam says we become overpressured by humanity, its needs and achievements, and we forget God's greatness and that he does not need us or our achievements. You know, we, we live, we create make-believe worlds. It's not just on the internet that we do that. 
But I think in so many ways, we think we are in control. When you're driving up your car in the A9 as, as I was, you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge here. No, you're not. We were going from Aberdeen to um, Inverness, and an hour after we passed Keith, uh, a minibus of people and a four-by-four crashed and five people died. Not one of those people driving along would have been thinking of even the possibility of that. It's quite chilling when you've just been on that road. And... I think we, we have this view of ourselves that if we, I mean, it's really good just to get out and see what God has made and what God has done. Don't just watch David Attenborough. Go out and experience the wonder of God's creation. That does help us in our spirituality. Same way with fellowship. If we neglect fellowship, says Adam, we easily become erratic, unloving, unrealistic, self-centered, or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Close Christian fellowship is a gracious provision of God to help us live in reality. That is really important. If you think, I think I heard George Duncan once say, uh, God has called you to live in fellowship with his people, and you discover they're a pretty rum lot. You think you've got this notion of church, this notion of Christians as just these wonderful people who live in this kind of Disney-esque fantasy world. It is Disney-esque fantasy because it's not real, and the church is not a Christian theme park. But if you are not in close Christian fellowship, then you will become unloving and unrealistic, and self-centered, and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because you stay away from others because they're sinners. But what do you think you are? And we need one another. And that's, again, why it's so important. We need the creation to develop a, a, a sense of perspective about who we are as human beings. We need Christian fellowship so we have a sense of perspective about our own sinfulness, and we can be helped and strengthened by one another. And then the Bible. If we neglect the Bible as a spiritual resource, says Adam, we easily slip into confusion, error, imbalance, idolatry, lack of spiritual discernment, and we're seduced away from the worship of Christ. We don't make good use of the varied spiritual resources God has given us. To find God in fellowship but to neglect the Bible leaves us vulnerable to the pressures of the people around us, to be too concerned about the approval of other people rather than the approval of God and subject to the spirit of our age and friendship group. There are Christians who say, well, yeah, I'm really into experiencing nature. And then others who say, oh, I'm, no, no, I'm really, really into um, the fellowship and so on. But if, if, if those are not guided by the word of God, then both of them will end up failing as well because what the Bible does is it keeps us right. And it challenges us, and it guides us, and it feeds us. It's God communicating to us. So if you want to have a spiritual mind, then the way to do that is to contemplate, take time, think about what God does. You know, C.S. Lewis has this... Uh, story of, well, the screw tape letters, many of you will know. And one of it, when one of the uh, victims of the devil, this, who's trying to get, stop him becoming a Christian, of course, he fails. And he says one of the problems, in one chapter he mentions one of the problems is, you, you let him go on walks. And he didn't go on walks for exercise. He just went on walks for the sheer pleasure of it. And then the enemy spoke to him, meaning God spoke to him. And you know, there are things that we can do that give us breathing space, if you like, spiritually. The devil will always want to keep us too busy to have time. And that happens. It happens in terms with church as well. The devil will want to keep us away from any meaningful kind of fellowship. We're all just too tired. We all just... You know, we can't be bothered. We've got all these things to do. 
But contemplating God through his creation, being with God's people, and I think above all, hearing what God has to say, these are, these are essential to having the mind of Christ, to being much more spiritual than we are. So let me just leave it there and just ask you to think about what you think about, to think about where your mind is and if it's on your next iPhone or all the concerns and worries that you have and your fruitfulness, your spirituality has been choked by those, if it's on your future relationships, if it's on illness, if it's on what's going on in the world, if it's like, you know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how quickly people get obsessed. I, I, one of the things about social media is it lets you know what people are obsessed by, and people are obsessed by Brexit, and they're obsessed by numerous different things. And I just wonder how many of us are able to back off from everything and to focus on Christ. And that's a great thing about the Lord's Day. It's a great thing about us being here this evening. It's a great thing about having his word. May it be that we would all have the mind of Christ and the mind of the Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We do come to you and we do confess that our minds wander all over the place. We are obsessed about the things that can feed our immediate needs. We rush and hurry and go round and round in circles. And we don't have time to back off and to think about the burden you have laid upon us, that you have set eternity in our hearts. You've made everything beautiful in its time. But we cannot fathom what you have done from beginning to end. So help us to listen to you. Help us to be still and to know that you are God. Help us not to be those who continually come to you like whining children demanding our every need be met. And instead, help us to come to you as those who contemplate and who know who you are and who trust you as our loving Father and who believe that even when we ask for things, you will grant us what is good, not just what we ask for. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be manipulative people seeking to use you and to use others for our own ends. Help us to be gracious, to be people who are filled with the fruit of the Spirit and not with the fruit of the sinful nature. Each of us, O oh God, has much to confess in this area, and each of us needs to go deeper and deeper. And so we ask that you would graciously do so, and we bless you that you have provided the means of grace you've provided your word, you've provided your spirit, you've provided your church, you've provided your day. And we bless you for this, for these gifts. And we pray that as we draw nearer to heaven, each of us would inwardly be being renewed day by day, although outwardly we are fading. So go before us. Thank you for your day. Thank you for the privilege of jo and joy of being with your people and sitting at your table and bless each of us in the week that lies ahead that we may serve you and glorify you in all that we say and do in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing Offer a Closer Walk with God, which is what Paul, I think, is urging us to. We'll stand and sing a Go for a closer walk with God, a constant heavenly calm, a light to shine upon the road leading to the Lamb. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise.
are to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, may grace and peace abound. Amen.